Welcome to Productivity Mastery. Stoy here, a productivity and performance coach on a mission to help businesses and people get the most out of their time. On this podcast, I'll bring you exceptional performers and together unlock what it takes to perform at your highest level. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Good morning, those of you who are listening live. My name is Toyan and I'm a productivity and performance coach and author of the book, Perform the Unsexy Truth about startup success with the co-author Cristobal Alonso from Startup Wise Guys. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about startups, we're going to talk about growth, and we're going to talk about fast scaling. And I have just the perfect guy for the job. Um, actually, we, we, we had the, the chance to meet thanks to... Thanks to Cristobal, my co-author. Uh, Patrick, how, how, how do you know Cristobal, by the way? Yeah, um, good morning, Stojan. First of all, thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, Cristobal is also an INSEAD alumnus. Um, so we, we've been connected by someone uh, we know um, in common from the INSEAD uh, association who said, you know, actually, you should also talk to Cristobal. He is also about to publish a book. It's also, he's also involved in the startup scene. Why don't you guys connect? Which we obviously did, and and uh, you know we 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 share uh, many things in common. Yeah? The passion about startups, about scaling. Um, so um, it's a, always a pleasure to to meet INSEAD alumni, uh, and this is how, how we got uh, met Stoyan. Huh? Yeah, I'm super excited about this conversation. Let's see where it will lead us. For those of you who are tuning in right now, I just want to remind you, if uh, you're listening and enjoying the podcast, uh, make sure to visit us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast platform, major podcast platform, and uh, you can subscribe there, see more episodes, and uh, let us know what you think about it. But let's just not waste any more time and and get into the topic. Patrick, before we... uh, get into the topic of fast scaling and hear more about your new book. I would like uh, if you can share with the audience a little bit about uh, your background. What uh, have you been doing? Uh, Then you had a shift in your career, which would be interesting to explore. And what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, uh, happy. Happy to do so, uh, Stoyan. So I'm a lawyer by background. I, I studied law. I have a PhD in law and a master in international business law. And I started out working as a lawyer for an international business law firm, Freshitz Brookhaus Deringer, where I worked in the private equity um, practice group. So on large buyout transactions, both sell side and buy side. And so I advised private equity firms on their acquisitions and, and uh, secondary transactions. I also advised uh, big corporates on, on their M&A activities. Um, and at some point in time, and actually I was thinking about this already earlier, um, when I was studying the law, I said to myself, actually, I don't want to advise uh, these guys. Uh, I actually would love to invest. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I said, okay, maybe just being a lawyer. I mean, I, I've, my, my master's also in business law. So I started a little bit of business administration as well, but it, I, 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 it felt as if I was missing something. So I decided to, to not directly try to switch, but um, uh, attended the INSEAD MBA program in order to focus more on the business aspect, aspects of investing. Yeah, and then afterwards, it still took some time. I became a partner in, in, in business law firms where I then focused more on venture, venture deals. 
I advised founders and investors and also corporates on their venturing activities. If you go on my LinkedIn profile, you will also see a lot of publications uh, about corporate venture capital. Um, and in 2015, Metro Group, the big wholesaler, asked me whether one of my clients at the time asked me whether I wanted to help them re-establish um, the corporate venture capital unit, which I did. So in 2015, I, I joined Metro, uh, established the corporate venture capital vehicle with a specific goal in mind, meaning being structured as an independent fund and at the same time managed to generate more than, than financial returns for Metro or strategic returns and provide startups with more than money, you know, leverage really the corporate's assets. And I've done that for five years. We've stopped investing out of the first fund. And since uh, February, we as a team spun out of Metro Group. We are now independent. We are currently raising a growth capital fund, uh, probably around 300, 400 million in order to invest in really more mature companies with at least 10 million in revenues, a nice growth rate. Um, and what, what is important for us, and maybe that is also a link to the book, in viable businesses. Uh, so we see strong unit economics. We see this can become profitable businesses. So we will never ever invest in companies that are only top line focused. Yeah, but this is, this brought me here. And, and uh, in, in 2020, I decided to write a book actually about how to how to scale businesses, because after 16 years in private equity and venture, I've seen some patterns also in our portfolio, you know, what works, what does not. And um, people were approaching me, especially founders, asking these kind of questions, you know, how can I blitz scale? I want to blitz scale. Um, but the, the question, you know, why do you want to blitz scale? They rarely had an answer. And I thought, you know, actually for the startup community, it's probably worth writing a book, how to be smart about scaling a business. <clears throat> Maybe it takes a little bit longer, but the probability to succeed is higher. Thank you, Patrick, for the introduction. And those of you who are tuning in right now, who are listening to the podcast, make sure to go and check out Fast Scaling. It's available now uh, on Amazon. I got a Kindle version. Uh, I'm halfway there, um, so still some, some to read. But I got to say, Patrick, you've done something amazing. This book is so practical. We had this discussion before we started on the podcast. Uh, you were saying maybe it's it's very German, right? It's very practical. It's very to the point. There's no fluff, and which is which is what I actually like about it. It's a book in English, but it's every chapter, everything that's put in there is meaningful, is practical. It's from your experience overseeing so many startups, scale ups, helping them to grow, and seeing what are the patterns that actually make them grow. And let's maybe start uh, digging into the content of the book and the key takeaways. You talk about premature scaling, blitz scaling, and fast scaling. Could you tell me what is the difference and maybe just explain a little bit more about this? Yeah. So maybe start, um, let me start with a study conducted by Genome Report, Berkeley, and Stanford. Um, I, I've come across the study and the result of analyzing 3,200 startups was actually 70% of startups fail because of premature scaling. What does premature scaling mean? It means you accelerate the growth before you actually have validated the fundamental elements of your business model. Yeah, you invest too heavy in, in, in hiring people. Um, you acquire customers faster than you should given that you know your customer lifetime value, customer acquisition cost ratio is not uh, good enough. 
Um, so there are many, many forms of, of premature scaling. And in my view, blitz scaling is one, one form of premature scaling. And I think um, this book written by Reed Hoffman and, and Chris Yeh, they also say it's, it's they, they do not explicitly say it's premature scaling, but they say they focus on growth um, without having proven that the business model actually works. Yeah, and they so it's all about generating revenues, capturing market share, um, and it's a little bit like building the plane while flying. Um, and certainly, if you if you have not proven your business model, um, you may even lose money on the customers that you acquire. What does this lead to? It leads to high cash burn, um, and you see this phenomenon in in the U.S. Um, where there are venture investors who pour hundreds of millions in these kind of startups that have not yet proven the business model because they believe in the market and the opportunity. Yeah? But these are actually rare exceptions, even in the US. Um, most of these companies that haven't proven the business model do not get this kind of funding. Um, and let's say, even if you get this funding from a founder perspective or business angel perspective, early stage investor perspective, why should you actually blitz scale if there is no need to do so? Because you actually burn a lot of cash and where's this cash coming from? Probably from investors who get a share in your company, the company you have founded. So in my view, you should only blitz scale if the market dynamics require you to do so. And a good example is, um, Airbnb, um, also mentioned in, in the book uh, written by Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh, they say Airbnb, Airbnb blitzscaled, but in fact, they didn't start out blitzscaling. They wanted to prove the business model in the US. They were focused on the US, tried to see whether it works, and only then they wanted to, to scale the business. They decided to blitzscale because there was this German clone, the rocket internet clone, Windu, who tried to capture the whole market and was heavily funded by, by Rocket Internet. So the market changed and they had to decide, do we still focus on the US, first prove the business model and then expand or should we now forget about the business model, first capture the market and then uh, get everything in order, um, uh, which they managed to do and, and they got the funding. So even the Airbnb example is actually exactly what I, Tell founders, it's like, you know, as long as you can work on building a strong foundation for your growth, if you have that foundation, you can fast scale and you will grow efficiently. You will keep more uh, of the stakes in your own company. And what the study also figured out is the companies that avoid premature scaling eventually grow 20 times faster than the ones who, who, who scale too fast. Huh? It's a little bit counterintuitive, but certainly if you have proven your business model, you, you're, you're not necessarily profitable, but what you, what you do is you acquire customers profitably. And then you, you know, every money that you get from your customer, you can reinvest in further growth. So it's, it's actually, while it seems counterintuitive, it's quite logic. Yeah? So if you, if you want to break it down in, in, in a few cents, you would say premature scaling is you scale your business, you focus on top line growth, only um, blitz scaling is one form of that. And you know, fast scaling is, is first build a solid high growth foundation, then accelerate growth, heavily fuel the growth engine. Um, and only if the market requires you to blitz scale, do so earlier.
you mentioned building the strong foundation and in the book you're exploring in depth the five uh, building blocks for a foundation and i think it will be interesting to to talk about them um and correct me if i'm wrong it's the product market fit the product channel fit uh strong unit unit economics uh, scalable technology and then scaling for market leadership in a large market Correct. so why did you pick those five as the building foundation blocks yeah uh, why did i choose them actually yeah i was uh, sitting in my room thinking about what does it actually mean to validate the business model <laughs> um and um i i ended up with these five pillars and i explain i can explain why so first of all let me start with the fifth building block which is market leadership in the, in, the, in a large market why do i want to start there because if i were a founder i would spend an incredible amount of time trying to understand is this market really large is it a huge market because if it's not huge you will never ever build a huge company maybe you don't want to do so and there are many great entrepreneurs out there in niche markets or who, who who have built great companies with let's say 20 million in revenues a nice ebta margin and they are happy but if you want to build a large company you usually need to have a large market and maybe Stoyan, uh, you know it Christopher probably also knows it we see pitch decks um always you know numbers like three billion five billion seven billion this is a huge market opportunity yeah and just yesterday actually i, I, I had sorry i had once uh, i think prior to corona there was a 150 billion market size and we're yeah. going to take 10 percent of it yeah. <laughs> they didn't have a product yet it's 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 crazy it's, uh... yeah exactly and then i think just yesterday i was um, um together with the management team and an intermediary um a really interesting company i like it a lot but when we when we came to the market slide it again showed like you know four billion five billion and people were saying, you know, the management team, look how, how huge the market is. And I, I said, you know, I couldn't care less about these numbers, you know. Um, they don't tell me nothing. Is it really your market? Um, is it a, 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 your key target customers? Is this really focusing on your key target customers? Can you, with your business model, actually capture this, this market? Um, there's no answer to it. And, and then, you know, okay, let, let's do it the other way around. Let's talk about how many customers are actually out there you could actually theoretically serve uh, and try to understand how much in revenues or gross margin uh, gross profit can you generate if you serve these customers yeah then you get to this total addressable market and you need to be really precise you know is it is it the key target customer is your go-to-market strategy really are you able to capture all these customers and if you do this kind of bottom-up analysis, many, many markets get smaller and smaller. And being precise there, I think, is really important for wannabe founders and also for established companies that want to go into new markets, want to um, develop new products. This kind of how big is the market question, it's always there. It's always in board meetings. It's, it, will, it will never vanish. Um, so it's really important to be there. And, and uh, long story short, um, Many markets are not as big as, as founders think uh, they are. Uh, so that's why it's so important. And maybe market leadership, certainly people and, and investors, uh, private equity firms, strategic investors buy, uh, buy companies that are market leader um, with a premium. So being uh, the market leader certainly um, 
comes with a high probability to, to, to sell the company for, for a high price tag. Huh? It reminds me, actually, Cristobal uh, often shares this. If I can only ask two questions to founders who are interested to, to get an investment, to get into the acceleration program, I would ask these two questions. Why do you do what you do? And how do you make 100 million, your first yeah. 100 million? Because it gives me, first of all, it tells him, are we aligned it? Do we have a bigger purpose? Are we all connected and we understand why we do what we do? We have passion about it. And then the second part is what you talk about, which is, do you have an idea? Do you have a plan? How big is the market? Yeah. And is it realistic and reasonable? Because some people fly up in the sky trying to impress the people on the other side. So um, is there any specific practical recommendations you can share for this area for the founders out there who are struggling to figure out what uh, what is the size of their market? I mean, um, hopefully they read my book and they are wiser afterwards. But yeah, I think there are two approaches to market sizing. It's first is the top down approach where you find a public source you can work with. And that can be, you know, the market for this kind of product is 4 billion. Yeah. This is then maybe it is the total addressable market, but you know you need to be need to understand this is really the, the product that you want to sell. Yeah, so it's about you know is the total addressable market really one hundred percent fit with your product or not? Um, let's assume it is. You would go to the serviceable addressable market, understand how much of that market can I actually service in let's say the next four or five years? Because if you start with the with the global market. And, and you just create a startup, chances are high, you will not manage to capture uh, um, the, the global market. So is it the European market? Is it the German market? What's, what, what kind of market can you actually service? Um, then you could say service also from a business model perspective. If, you, if there are, let's say, restaurants, if, if you want to sell to restaurants, there are restaurants all over the, the world and, and even in urban areas. Uh, everywhere but if you want to focus on on major cities you need to forget about all the other restaurants yeah so how many restaurants are actually out there that you can service um and then the last question is service and obtainable market how much of that market can you actually capture because there's always competition there will be competition and there will also be people who, who don't want to buy your, your product and and um, what helps at least if you have little da um, some data points is your conversion rate yeah, to understand how many customers do I reach out to, how many do I convert into, into real customers. And that helps you also understand from getting from the service addressable market to the service obtainable market. This is a top-down approach, but I think it's always better to start the other way around and understand how many define your key target customers, which is anyway really important. How many are out there? How much revenue can I generate um, uh, selling to these customers in a year? Yeah, this is then a better starting point and then you again have to ask yourself how many of them can i service and what what is obtainable for me um, this is um, how i do it so bottom up top down and if you if you find other ways um, um it's even better so triangulating the results i love that you uh focus in the book on building the fundamentals first and, and now we're talking about these five uh, fundamental blocks and without mentioning you can actually mentioning the importance of execution and actually being fast i mean the book is called fast scaling right yeah fastly go and find this uh, there's so many founders out there technical founders especially great technical people 
who don't want to go and talk to customers and they don't want to show their product to anybody because it's a unique feature and we don't want to show it to anybody. We're going to build it first and they build it for months, sometimes years, and they haven't spoken to anybody. They have no idea what's their market. So what is your take on that? When should founders go and talk to customers and figure out who is the who is the customer, figure out what is the kind of pain in the product that they they want to yeah. Yeah, no, very good question, Stoyan. Maybe, maybe first, um, let me say there is this kind of there's product market fit, but there's also this word founder market fit. Uh, um, and for me, this means you know there is a reason why the founder is in this market and want want to sell products in this market. And and I like founders who have maybe worked in this industry, understood there is a pain, there's an obstacle, and they want to find a solution which helps uh, all other people out there overcome this, this, this challenge, this obstacle. Yeah, this is for me like there is a reason why this founder in this market. There are also other examples where consultants manage to get into an industry, analyze it and manage to, to, to build great, great companies. I think Zender, for example, a great human uh, German company is a good example. But I think just founder market fit is really important. Then to precisely to your question, um, let's that's product market fit for me, the first building block. Um, you still see, indeed, people who start out with a product and say, this is a great product. People will buy it, you know, uh, trust me. Yeah? <clears throat> so I think that's the wrong starting point. You should always start with the market and understand there is a <clears throat> pain and you try to solve it. Um, and if you have analyzed the market and you see there is a pain, Come up with a product that solves the problem. <coughs> um, and certainly the first MVP will not solve the problem nicely. So it's really about then um, with what Eric Ries calls the lean startup <coughs> approach, going through this feedback loop, you know, going out to the customer and learn from the feedback, adjust the product yeah, and go out again until you, you feel you're making progress um, and customers are more satisfied. Um, and product market fit is, is, is hugely important. And Mark Andreessen once said, it's, it's the only thing that matters, um, which I disagree, but he probably also disagrees with this statement, but <clears throat> it's, it's hugely important because if you, if you don't have product market fit, you sell something that people don't actually need. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the difficult part is understanding when have you actually generate a product market fit. When are you there? And uh, for me, there are many ways to look at this. I talk about in my book about the NPS, for example. There are other ways to look at it, customer satisfaction score. <clears throat> but for me as an investor, I, I invest in data stage companies, so I see data points. It's a lot about customer retention, revenue retention. How often do customers come back? How do they churn? And you usually want to see improvement in, in churn and, and retention rates. <laughs> and if you see this and it's getting better and better, you can assume you have found product market fit. And that is the, the aha moment. Uh, this is, you know, now we've got it. Um, and maybe directly to the second building block, which is product channel fit. Um, indeed, um, product market fit is not all that matters because if you have a product but no channel to which you can sell the product, <clears throat> it's nice to have a product but you won't make money. And um, product channel fit is about finding 
a suitable channel, um, a channel to which you can sell your products on great economic terms. So customer acquisition costs need to be really low compared to your customer lifetime value. An example where it doesn't work, I've um, looked a lot in, into hospitality industries, into restaurant, restaurant tech, and we all know these great uh, restaurateurs who prepare awesome food, yeah? but if you want to sell them digital products, you know, you either don't reach them. If you reach them, you have to, they, they say it's not, it's a bad time to talk. Um, and then and you, you end up, or some startups ended up with feet on the street, salespeople on the street selling to these restaurateurs. And feet on the street is hugely expensive, while the customers, the restaurateurs, are usually not willing to pay a lot for, for, for these kind of solutions. And this is an example where you maybe find a, a channel to which you can sell digital products to restaurateurs, but it doesn't work from an economic perspective. Yeah? The business model doesn't work. Yeah? So it's really also about working on product market fit and product channel fit in parallel with a you know, company-wide um, uh, uh, endeavor, like people from product are, are involved, tech people are involved, marketing, sales people, so that you understand you develop something that you can sell to your customers on good economic terms. There was an interesting phrase or a sentence in the book which made me think really made me think and it was something around the lines of product market fit is relevant at any stage in your company yeah that's that's true it's, it's like uh, with market sizing yeah uh, you will not um end discussing with your board members product market fit um and why is this so first of all even if, if you find product market fit the preference of your people may change. They may want to have a different product or um, uh, other products, um, maybe competition um, comes up with, with different approaches. So you always have to have your customer in mind and make your customers successful. And even if the preference of these customer customers change, you need to focus on product market fit. And certainly also, if you expand internationally, it's not about you know what works in Germany, works in France, I can tell you that. Yeah? Um, so it's a different culture, maybe also from a product channel fit. The channel that works in Germany must not necessarily work in France. Yeah? So it's about understanding the customer in France. How is, how is he or she different to the customer in Germany? Can I generate product market fit also in France? And what do I have to do from a product perspective, from a tech perspective, yeah? from the go-to-market perspective? Yeah? So I think if you want to scale a business, you will have to find sources for growth. And these are usually, uh, you know, you accelerate growth in your existing market with your existing customer base, <clears throat> with your existing channel, or you find different customer segments that you want to um, target. They will have different preferences. Your product needs to, needs to be adapted. You want to expand internationally, different culture, different people. What do I have to do in order to generate product market fit? I want to create a new product. How can I generate product market fit for this product? So this product market fit is so, 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 so important. And it should always be top of mind if, if you're a founder. I love that you mentioned that uh, product channel fit um, is, I think it's somewhere in the book, you mentioned that it's, it's something that channels are changing. Customers' preferences are changing. So you can't just say, I found it. That's it. Product channel fit, product market fit. Let's let's go for the next ten years. 
customers' preferences are changing, trends are changing, what people want to buy and how they want to buy it, what's the competitors, the whole landscape is changing. So, so you can't just define it and say, that's it, it's set in stone, we got, we got to move on, yeah. we got to be always on alert, right? Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, look, for example, the, the Instagram channel, it was not always there, right? But now the Instagram is a channel through which you can sell your products and, and people are on Instagram, yeah? And they were not there before, yeah? So it's, it's a new channel that, that came up. Um, and, or, or influencers. Uh, look at, at Gymshark, a, a company that I, I really admire. I've not looked under the hood, but I think it's incredible how this, how this guy generated product market fit, used the influencers, as a channel to the customers and created this incredibly huge business um, without actually having received funding from VCs. Only just recently, he, he, he took on, uh, I think, 20 million, but I'm not, not sure, in, 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 in venture money in order to accelerate growth. But this is like, for me, how fast scaling should look like in practice. Uh, you, you really focus on, on product market fit, find the right channel. Usually then the third pillar, this translates into strong unit economics where you see customer lifetime value and customer acquisition costs are, are really uh, in line or the ratio is, is, is uh, uh, significant. Um, you have a short payback period and then you see, okay, actually it works. Yeah? And then if we have also made sure that the market is large enough, this is really, aha, let's go. Yeah? And why did I choose the, uh, the fourth building block, uh, tech scalability? Yeah. Own, own experiences and actually bad experiences. Tell me I've about it. This, I've had this aha moment as a board member. And then, you know, the company realized the tech is not scalable. Uh, we had to re-engineer the tech infrastructure. Um, it took us one or one and a half years in order to re-engineer the, the technology so it is scalable. And, you know, imagine what, you, what kind of cash you burn in, in that time. Also, having hired people who wanted to accelerate growth. Um, what it means in terms of motivation uh, slash frustration for people who who, who uh, joined the, the company in order to, to now uh, build something something huge and and it all stopped because the tech was not scalable and this is where one of my major learnings actually as an investor also um, I do not underestimate the importance of having a scalable technology and the tech due diligence for me as a later stage investor is so important because you can get to a significant traction on a poor technology. Yeah, you can get initial traction, it all works. But if you really want to um, fuel the growth engine, um, you know, you, customers use your products, um, more and more customers, hopefully engagement increases. Is the tech, can, can it actually cope with this increase in traffic and, 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 and growth? It's a major, major question I, I, I always ask when I look into companies. But in a nutshell, these are the five billion blocks. Large market, product market fit, product channel fit, unit economics, tech scalability. Uh, you, you give an interesting example, a recent example with uh, Disney Plus about uh, the inability to measure the uh, scalability of the tech. Can you maybe share that one? Yeah, I mean, everybody probably knows Disney Plus, and I'm also, uh, I also have this for my children, especially. Um, and Disney Plus, they were overwhelmed by, by the demand for, for their product. And when they launched Disney Plus, it crashed, actually. Uh, the, the service was not available. And then, you know, people reached out to the support uh, staff, 
um, and they couldn't solve the problem. So the customer were really dissatisfied, yeah? poor performance. Now for Disney Plus, this is probably not a huge problem. I mean, I would say, you know, it could have been a better start, but they fix it. Maybe, maybe they have lost uh, some money on this, but you know, who cares? It's running now. It's it's great. It's a great product. They make the money. All good. But if you are a startup and you have the your, the customers, they, they want your product, and then you, the technology crashes and it doesn't work. You know, they will leave. They will churn, and they will tell all other people out there. You know, this is really really a bad experience. This company sucks. This product sucks. Don't buy it. So, and this leads you know can to, uh, lead to a, a kind of death spiral where you know customer acquisitions costs go up because people hear bad things about your products your customer lifetime value goes down because people churn so that is i know disney plus yes it happens even to corporates um but if you're a startup you need to avoid these kind of situations i just want to get back before we move on with uh, with other topics to get back to product market fit a lot of founders listening right now they might be thinking how do i know that i I reached reach this destination, right? I, I reached the product market fit. Um, what could be some indicators that you can maybe mention and, and how much intuition plays a role in the process? A very good question. I think the uh, last part in this chapter about product market fit tells the reader, you need to use your intuition because there is no um, one metric that says, now you've reached it. Now you generated product market fit. Huh? But um, I would approach it from, from different angles. I would really use the net promoter score. Yeah? Ask ask the the customers how how satisfied are you, and don't inflate the net promoter score, which I often see it to be honest. Yeah, really ask at the right uh, point in time. Don't choose your cherry pick your your the customers that you ask. You know, really be be honest with yourself. You know, but NPS gives you a certain indication, and, and you, normally. You should improve. You should, see, you should see an improvement in in the net promoter score over time. So the better it gets, the closer you get to product market fit. Um, and then for me, it's it's really about understanding churn. So how many customers um, terminate the contract with you if you have a SaaS business, for example, or if you have a transaction-based business model? How often do customers come back and buy products? You should also see improvements there. If people are satisfied, they will come back more often. Or the, your churn rate, i.e., uh, the customers who terminate the, the contracts, um, this this rate should go down. Um, and this is where I look, from a later stage perspective, into cohorts of customers. You know, the customer cohorts, the, the revenue cohorts. So the revenues that these cohorts generate, you should see an improvement over time. The the younger cohorts should always be better than the older cohorts. And this is what I use. Um, in order to understand, has this company actually received product market fit, uh, generated product market fit? And ultimately, you need to see good unit economics. If you see good unit economics, it actually shows you, you know, you satisfy your customers, they have a higher high willingness to pay, you have found a good channel to your customers. So the unit economics concept is, is really important, and which, which is also actually why I put in the appendix various ways how to calculate unit economics for for platform businesses, for e-commerce businesses, for SaaS businesses, because there are different ways to do it and, and you need to be accurate about this. Yes, great. Uh, and those of you who, who are tuning in a little bit later, make sure guys to go check out Fast Scaling 
it's available. Uh, Patrick, maybe you want to show it as well. It's available on Kindle. It's available on uh, Amazon on paper copy. Uh, lots of lots of good stuff. We're discussing some of them right now. Uh, one of the things I'm really passionate about, and we, you're mentioning that it, it, this is a core message in the book, is you talk about customer success, and you even say you should focus on customer success instead of putting your main focus on sales and marketing. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. So customer success is, is the first building block of the fast scaling um, uh, part of, of, of fast scaling. Um, and you know, when I wrote the book and I finished the chapters about the growth foundation, I certainly thought about you know what does it actually mean now to accelerate growth? How can you do it in a smart manner? Um, and it's, again, not about investing heavily only in marketing and sales because as we said before product market fit um can, you may lose it you should not lose sight of your customer should always have in mind the customer make sure that the, the customer is successful that the customer has a great customer experience and a, and is has a great return on his or her investment yeah so that if the customer is successful he will and she will talk about the product with others, we recommend the product. These customers will be prone for up and cross sell, which will increase your revenue per customer. And you know, if you focus on customer success, the ratio between customer lifetime value and customer acquisition costs will get better and better. Your investments into buying customers will be um, recouped earlier. And the money that you invest, you can really reinvest in further fueling your growth engine. And this is way more important than thinking about marketing and sales. Marketing and sales is important. And you need to understand how much did I have to invest earlier in order to acquire a customer? What, what do I need to, in terms of hiring people in order to now in, in, improve my growth rate, accelerate growth? What does it actually mean? But you know, marketing, sales, and customer success are things that you should never, ever separate. And customer success is for me the north star every founder should have yeah and i think if we shift our perspective into how do i generate more value for the customers than they expect than they expect right like uh, um they expect to buy a product or service from you whatever it is that you do but having the mindset can i do something to all them can I do something to uh, to add additional value to them? So so they they are like, wow, these these people actually really care. These pe yeah. of course they will come back. Of course they'll stay longer. Of course they'll tell their friends. It's a it's a small world, and sometimes it might take you more resources, more effort, as you said in the short term. You might have to invest time, resources, energy, sometimes money, to be able to provide this. And it's hard, right? You're against time as a founder. So, so how do you do that? How do you balance that? But but it's going to pay off. That's why it's so important. And that's why this system is, is really, really great. Because, Patrick, you broke down the main building blocks that you have to have in order for you, when it's time for you to scale, to have a smoother ride. It doesn't mean you're going to succeed. There's no guarantees. But you prepare the ship, right? You prepare the ship for, for taking off. Yeah. And that's the important thing. Um, the second thing you mentioned in the... In maybe, the Stuyan, let me, because yeah. it's so important, maybe two aspects to it. First of all, 
I've seen founders who, who successfully push products into the market. Yeah, great marketing people, great sales people can sell products, but you know, the, the customer will realize, is it actually solving my pain? Yeah, the, if marketing and sales tell the customer it solves your pain, they may, might buy the product, but if it does not, the, the customer will churn or never come back. So it's, it's like, you know, marketing and sales is only uh, short-lived if, 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 you, if you don't make your customer successful. And then maybe important, and I think that is uh, something I should, you know, if there's a second edition, I will write about this. But if you think about growth, where, where is growth coming from? Many founders think it's by acquiring customers. But this is only one source of growth. You know, the, the second part is, if you want, activating, onboarding the customer successful, but even more important is retaining your customers. Yeah? And SaaS is a good example here. You know, if you acquire a customer, you have, let's say, you have acquired 100 customers. Yeah? If you keep them yeah, and acquire each month new 100 customers, it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But if the customers are not successful, the 100 that you have acquired, they will leave and you have to fight against this churn all the time. And you will have a hard time really um, growing your business. And this is in, in SaaS, it's very obvious, but it's everywhere. If, if, you, if you don't focus on acquiring customer and making them successful, retaining your customers, growth will be difficult. So, and, and also from a, let's say, leadership perspective, you know, often VP of sales or the sales people are, are, are the ones. Yeah? But I think the one who is also leading customer success can sometimes have even more revenue uh, responsibility than the one who acquires customers. Yeah? Thanks, thanks for this clarification. And uh, one other point that you mentioned, I don't remember exactly where in the book, but you talk about make sure that every product, every feature uh, is translates in return on investment. I mean, yeah. this is more about the, the topic about focus, but I think it's such a relevant point. And can you maybe share more about this? Yeah. I think you mentioned in your book, um, you've used a, a quote by Bruce Lee, right? Um, uh, I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you remember? It? But focus is like the the man who, who thrives is, has a laser-like focus or something like that. I wanted to use actually the same quote, which is funny. When I read your book, I said, you know, I, I wanted to, to use it as well because focus is so important, and uh, I, the other way around, complexity is a growth killer. Um, it's, you know, I was going to add it. So, so um, you know, I had to read it as well. Um, the successful warrior is the average man with laser-like focus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's incredible because I think really focus is so important and the other way around complexity is for me a growth killer. Um, and also maybe first an example um, for why complexity is, is so difficult. So if you want to, if you raise a lot of money, and you tell your investors, I want to now go uh, into a new market. I want to sell into new customer segments. And by the way, I would uh, also sell through different channels. Yeah. If, if you think about this is like, you know, only the three is already pretty complex, but then, you know, you need to adapt your marketing material to the new country. Um, you, you, you need to understand the, the customer, how, how is, is he or she different? Um, does this channel work? Actually, most of the channels do not work. And this kind of complexity is really hard um, uh, 
to, to, to cope with. And so I always tell people, you know, be focused, make sure you, you, your focus is right and then make it work and then move to the next one. Yeah? So that is, I think, really important. And then on product and your question as regards, you know, make sure your products and your features um, make sense from a business perspective. Um, I see many customers who say, I need um, this or that feature. Yeah? But you cannot satisfy all your customers. Um, you cannot start developing everything your customers need um, because sometimes it's only a few customers that actually need the product or the product feature and the de development costs do not make sense at all, um, serving only a few customers. And again, it creates complexity if you have new products or new product features and you know maybe you want to also roll them out internationally. Um, so that, that doesn't, doesn't make sense. And it's really important to always focus only on the key target customers because these are the ones that you can satisfy and disregard all others because they will anyway not be satisfied. And if you start developing product features for them, you know, really be sure that if you develop that feature, this customer will be satisfied and this will can become a, a key target customer. Then it can make sense. Yeah? But, you know, Especially when we talk with founders about product market fit, you hear, you know, they need X, Y, Z. Yeah. And then you really make sure, do they really need this? How many do, do need this product feature? Um, um, I think being a little bit cautious there <coughs> um, um, in terms of what the customer expects, maybe uh, Ford, who said, you know, if I had asked my, my customers what they want, they, they had said, you know, faster horses. Yeah, so um, it, it, it's, it's still a good example here, I would say. Yeah? It, the, ask your customer, but be, be cautious and, and um, uh, analyze the answers um, thoroughly. So, sometimes it's the customer. Sometimes it's, it's ourselves that want to build stuff. It's uh, we mentioned in, in, in the Perform book, uh, one of the, the villains of uh, focus and execution is the shiny object syndrome. Oh my God, it would be amazing if we put this feature. Oh, it would be awesome to do. Like, yeah, yeah but we already kind of 120% of the capacity of the people we have. Like, why? Like, yeah, but it's going to be amazing. Everybody's okay. <laughs> no, yeah. it's good. It's great to have new ideas and we need to have new ideas. But before we launch something, before we start executing, we need to be careful what we say yes to. So we can, we can actually grow steadily in long term and and this is actually the next couple of pillars that you talk about uh, growing predictably and growing efficiently um i think the first one is really interesting when i read growing predictably um many founders would be like well, what does that even mean <laughs> how do i predict it like you know startups scale ups there's so much uh, uncertainty around this so how do we ensure predictable growth mm -hmm. I mean, predictable growth is something that you can achieve only if you have validated the business model. You know, if you have a certain size, enough data points. But if you look back and you understand what it actually means, what you need to do in order to acquire and retain your customers, um, if you understand this, um, and I'm com coming back to cohort analysis, if you see how the cohorts of customers develop, you can also predict the future to a certain extent, meaning if you acquired 100 customers 
And after four years, 90 are there with, let's say, 110% revenue retention. You can understand, you know, what does it mean to acquire another 100? What does it mean in terms of revenue, in terms of churn, and also in terms of then OPEX and, and cash flow? Um, if you understand and analyze the history, you can, to a certain extent at least, predict also the future. Um, and it's a little bit, again, co more complex than thinking about marketing and sales, right? because depending on where you want to grow your business, yeah, you still need to understand what do I have to do in order to get there? Yeah? Is it a new market again? Then you need to involve product and tech people in order, how, how can I get to product market and product channel fit there? What kind of costs will I have to incur in order to get there? So it's really company-wide, but I think the past gives, gives you some indication about the future and you need to be thorough and, and, and involve all departments when you, when you plan, plan future growth. And it's for an investor, um, it's, it's nice to hear, you know, we've closed a big client, an enterprise customer, but, you know, nice, but, you know, will you close the next one next month or, or is it just a, a coincidence? Yeah? And for me, what I want to see is founders who understand their business and can predict to a certain extent the future, although we all know it's only a plan. And Patrick, you're, you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of pitches, hundreds of projects are being presented to you. You're investing with your partners. Um, you've seen a lot. What are some of the traits of great leaders when it comes to this stage in the company? Um, so I think leadership is very important here. Um, and, and leadership is, is the last building block of, of fast scaling. <clears throat> I mean, it's hard to say how a leader should look like. And there are various ways to be a good leader, in my view, um, various styles. Um, in, in my book, I talk a little bit about, or well, I, I raise some questions. Um, maybe founders should ask themselves, you know, in order to reflect on their leadership skills. But for me, um, leadership has a lot to do with creating trust um, in an environment where people um, feel safe speaking up saying no or you know indicating you might be wrong here because you want to understand you want to tap into the, all these kind of resources uh, pick the heads of the great people that you have hired or that you have on the board of directors and in order to do so you need to make them feel safe and 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 and, and speak up if something goes into the wrong direction whether you see it that way as well is a different story you as a leader need to make a decision at a certain point in time. But what you want to do is understand how these great people that you have surrounded yourself with, how do they think about this topic? Yeah? And they will only speak up if you, if you create a safe environment, if you create trust. So trust is really important for me. Then it's about being a role model. Yeah? If you want to convey the message, we are fast scaling, we are smart here, um, we want to grow efficiently. Um, you know, if you then, you know, throw cash out of the window yourself um, and, and you know you're not a role model and people will not follow you in this regard it's um, also when i enter offices i look at the screens at the walls it's only about revenue or is it also about customer satisfaction retention rates what is actually on on, on these kind of displays you know um, and as a leader you can you can find many ways to convey your message your vision and the way you want this company to grow 
and it's about being a role model. It's about creating trust. It's about being self-aware. Where am I strong? Where where do I have weaknesses? Um, and and be humble enough to hire people who are better than you, where you have these kind of weaknesses. Yeah. And so these are kind of topics I talk about in the book. You know, leadership skills. Um, creating a high-functioning board of directors is also a leadership skill. Um, raising money has also to do with leadership. How, how convincing you are as a leader. Do people, investors, believe that you can hire the talent that you need in order to make this a huge company? Can you transition from being a founder to a CEO? It's all about, about, about leadership. I love it. And, and Patrick, I think it will be very interesting also for the audience to hear more about your own personal productivity habits. After all, this is a podcast called Productivity Mastery, and you seem to be achieving a lot of things with uh, some sort of a German ease, <laughs> the way you do. Uh, but I'm curious, what do you do to, to stay at the top of your game? Do you have any specific practices on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you have any methods to make sure you manage your time properly? Uh, what do you do to stay at the top of your game? Yeah, um, very interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I try to maybe start with the, let's say, um, the softer aspect of it. Like, I try to meditate from time to time. Uh, so to, to remain calm and not uh, get stressed too often. Uh, so I think this is very important for me, certainly sports is, is is important for me because i think um it's 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 about also being being a healthy person um very important that i try to find also to to uh, go my peloton which i love a lot <laughs> um and then certain habits um when i when i studied um, it's a good example probably when i studied law you know i i told myself you know get up early um i i got up at, at six or six thirty And until lunch, I already studied for five or six hours when others, you know, when we met at, for lunch, others just, you know, uh, got out of bed and uh, had, had lunch and wanted to start learning and studying. And I had already six hours um, behind me. And I'm, that is probably a little bit German, pretty um, consistent in this regard. You know, it's, it's, it's not exception kills. This is probably one, one, one. One sentence that should be at the wall, you know, if, if you start making exceptions, uh, it's uh, it's the start of the end. Um, so being consistent in, in, in what you do is probably very important. Um, yeah, and the book, we've talked about the story, and um, I wanted to write a book that is to the point, no bullshit, not many repetitions. Um, so it's also about, you know, what is clarifying what is my goal in life and how do i get there yeah so it's it's also personally the goal the strategy the tactics to get there um this is sometimes i do not do this on a daily basis especially uh new year's day is a good uh, a good day for for reflecting on this am i on on, on the right uh, track on the right road should i change gears uh, what is what is the goal for the next year how do i get there Um, these are the kinds of thoughts that I have. Um, but meditation is also something really important. I started doing this 10 years ago and, and uh, it helps me a lot. Yeah, you mentioned bigger topics like life goals and, and purpose and so on. And maybe it's interesting for 
the listeners also to hear what are you passionate about these days and also in terms of investment and uh, you being a partner, investing in a lot of companies, uh, what kind of projects, what kind of ideas, what kind of solutions are you guys interested to invest in? Mm -hmm. So we invest in later stage companies. Um, it's important to say we are not the, and that it fits my book, not the top line focused uh, companies um, that we want to invest in. So I'm, I have a hard time believing that the delivery companies can become profitable at a certain point in time. And if I don't believe this, I will not invest in these kind of companies. Um, it's for me, it's really about finding founders who have managed to create viable businesses that have at least 10 million in revenues, um, a good a good CAGR, a good growth rate, a decent growth rate, maybe 30%, but a, a huge market where I can, you know, work with the founder, with the management teams on, you know, finding the right ways to, to, to grow the business. And, and that's what I'm passionate about. And this is also why I, why I wrote the book. Maybe worth mentioning, what I would really love to see is more bootstrapped businesses founder-led business, founders who, who managed to create these kind of businesses. Uh, if you are such a founder with a B2B tech business headquartered in Western Europe, please reach out because I think uh, it would, I would embrace the opportunity to work with you in order to accelerate growth, find new ways to, to, to make it a huge company. Um, so it's not about only about venture capital, entrepreneurship and, and creating uh, great businesses can also have to do with bootstrapping businesses. Could you just mention, uh, I, I'm not sure we mentioned the, the name of the, uh, you know, LeadX and where can people find it? Mm -hmm. So it's it's LeadX Capital Partners is, is the, the name of our fund. And the website is leadxcapital.com. Um, certainly we are also on LinkedIn. If you go onto my profile, you will you will find it. But certainly we have also a LinkedIn page. Um, and on, on Medium, there are some articles we've, we've published about uh, about us and, and what we do. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick, so much for being with us, sharing so much ideas. Uh, I think we we touched upon so many topics that definitely need to be explored in depth. And one one thing is to explore and to get the knowledge. And and I think everybody should go and check out Fast Scaling, uh, the book that Patrick uh, published recently super super practical um but but also it's about execution i mean all these ideas mean nothing unless you you apply them within the context of what you do nothing is set in stone all these ideas might work or they might need some sort of adaptation but it's about consistent execution as patrick said with his german consistency you gotta execute consistently in order to build momentum in whatever it is that you want to do um, Patrick, final question. Who's this book for and why should people get a copy of Fast Scaling? Mm -hmm. So the book, the key target customer of the book is the founder who wants to build a huge business in a smart way. Uh, it's, it, it's for founders. It should enable founders to look holistically at their business and ask the right questions. I think founders cannot be proficient in each and every discipline, but the books, book will help him or her ask the right questions and, and maybe also show the right North Star. It is also for everybody involved in, in growth. So really growth leadership. I think uh, I give some workshops for founders in the evening where 
we invite usually the founders and the, the top management team and where we discuss, you know, fast getting, but also specific obstacles this company, this founder, this team has to overcome. And I've realized, you know, it is not only a book for founders, you know, if, if you want to scale the business, your key people should also have a great understanding, a company-wide understanding what it actually means to grow a business, business and not only a department of, of specific knowledge. Yeah? And so this book is also helpful for founders and, and, the, and all C-level, VP-level teams. Thank you so much, Patrick. And thanks, everybody, who uh, was here with us today listening to the full podcast episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you enjoyed the episode, make sure to send it to a friend who might appreciate this knowledge, these ideas. Uh, and of course, you can go ahead and find Productivity Mastery Podcast on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe there. And of course, it will mean the world to us if you give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to reach even more people and, and grow the audience talking about growth. Uh, and... Um, Talking about the live sessions uh, next uh, Monday, on Monday, just in a few days, I'm going to have another guest. So make sure to tune in live uh, on Monday with Adam Fisher, who's from the world of entrepreneurship, an author, another author of uh, the book, Valley of Genius, talking about the history of uh, Silicon Valley and what can we learn about that. Uh, with that being said, Patrick, final message to our audience. Uh, what do you like to leave our audience with today? Yeah, first of all, thanks, Stoyan, for, for this great conversation. Yeah, to the audience, I mean, I hope, I mean, this book will help you. I've written this book in order to help founders succeed. Unfortunately, it's not a cook, uh, cookbook and a novel, so I won't get rich here. But it's really important for me. If you like it, please spread the word. Please leave a review on Amazon. It's incredibly important for, for, for the book. And hopefully it shows many founders across the globe who already buy it across the globe a smart way. It's not only about blitz scaling. There are smarter ways to do it until you need to blitz scale. Please spread the word. I, I couldn't uh, thank you more. Thank you so much, Patrick. Guys, go, go check out the book and uh, have a productive week ahead. See you again at the next episode of Productivity Mastery. Thank you guys for listening. And if you're looking for somebody to help you step up your team performance and boost your productivity, make sure to check out stoyanyankov.com for online workshop solutions and programs designed to help you go through the current situation in a smoother manner. Stay safe and keep moving forward.